Again, good morning, and um, glad to see you, and thank you for being here this morning. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments, and uh, we're going to be picking up with the Sixth Commandment this morning, very short passage, and I'm also going to look at something of a New Testament parallel, and all that's in the bulletin, so if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. And again, I want to say welcome to our guests. I know that uh, Jonathan Parker is here. Where are you, Jonathan? Where'd you go? Oh, there you are in the back. Okay, you brought, brought a big crew. So this is one of our brothers in the city who has a real heart for the city of Greenville and our downtown. And it's just been a fun person to get to know. So thanks for being here and for all the folks that you brought. Um, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verse 13. Again, I don't mind being redundant. I feel the need to say this, that the Ten Commandments are so familiar to, to so many of us. And they're just so iconic. It just seems like a list that's always been on the wall for all of time that I want you to think about the context in Exodus. Uh, The Israelites have just been rescued. They have just been rescued from slavery. They could not save themselves. Their lives were bitter. They had been in Egypt longer than there's been a United States, by far. Hundreds of years. Couldn't save themselves. God rescues them. He uses the language of with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and the Lord thunders out the law. And I want you to think about this, that, you know, we're, we're accustomed to this list. It's familiar to us. Of ten commandments on these tablets of stone, one of the commandments essentially says this, when I bring you, now that I've brought you out of slavery, now that I'm going to take you into a land of your own, And you won't work in someone else's vineyard. It'll be your vineyard. You won't be raising someone else's grain. You'll be raising your grain. You'll be making your wine. You'll be be raising your livestock. Now, when you do that, you drink this good water. You walk on this good grass. Don't attack each other. Don't strangle each other. Don't stab each other don't assault each other. This is a window into what we're like. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. You shall not murder. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of your word, prophecies and parables, poetry, apocalyptic images, letters, and commandments. We thank you for this command, and we pray that you'd open up our eyes, open up our hearts, that we would not feel different, removed from um, the murderer but would find ourselves identifying with our fellow sinners 
and being pointed to your son. Uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me start off with a 90s illustration. Uh, early 90s movie, which I've never seen and I don't recommend, called Single White Female. In fact, make a point of it, don't, don't ever see that movie. But uh, I remember seeing an interview with uh, one of the lead actresses, Jennifer Jason Lee. I think that's her name. And she played, she played the, bad, the bad person in this movie. And uh, she's, she's a murderer. And so she said to get ready for her role, she, <clears throat> she started researching more to get in character about murderers. And uh, even specifically about serial killers. And, and I just, th- this statement that she made in her interview has stayed with me even, what, 25 years later. She said, you know, really, when I, the more I looked at it, the real difference between, um, you know, normal people and serial killings, or killers, are the killings. The difference between murderers and those who don't murder are just the murders. Um, a song that came out several years ago by a guy named Sufjan Stevens, uh, not a super famous celeb, but some of you would know his name, Sufjan Stevens. And he wrote a song about a man named um, John Wayne Gacy Jr., and my timing is horrible on this, and I'm not being flippant about it because he was a real serial killer, but he, he lured children by dressing up as a clown and um, murdered dozens of children and um, even kept some of them under the floorboards of his own home. It's just completely gruesome. And uh, Sufjan Stevens writes this. The, the name of the song is John Wayne Gacy Jr., and he, he, he sings about, you know, what he did. And then here's the, the last stanza. Sufjan Stevens writes, And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. It's incredibly insightful. You know, that I, I, I've never known anyone who's murdered multiple people much less at that scale, done, done something that gruesome. But here you, you hear someone identifying with him, sort of like the actress did, saying, I am like that person. Look under the floorboards. Look deep down in the heart. You'll see what's up underneath the acts of murder. You'll see the same hatred. You'll see the same impulse of, you know what, I need you out of my life, and then I can really have my life. And I don't know if you noticed the, the, the quote on the front of the bulletin, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn was somebody who really felt the cruelty of, of the Soviet Union. And so, so where did that leave him? Did it leave him embittered for the rest of his life? And, and he says this, you know, man, it would be so easy if just the line of good and bad was so easy to distinguish. And all we had to do was just get rid of the bad people. Or just send them off to a colony somewhere and let them all be bad together and the good people can stay together and the culture can stabilize and we can be happy together. And he says, but isn't it the case that that line of good and bad runs through every single human heart? Can you identify with the cruel? Can you identify with the violent? Because if you've ever found yourself hating, we should be able to identify and that gets at really the heart of this commandment. And um, something that we've been trying to do throughout is to say, all right, well, what, what's just the bare bones language of each of these commands? 
what is it saying? We've got to look at that. We've got we to unpack what the scripture says. But then to say, what are the real heart issues here? Up underneath the behaviors. And interesting, you know, I know that we do have some folks who haven't been here for this series, so I really want to say this again. The New Testament could not be clearer that the law is not supposed to just, in the New Covenant, is not supposed to just be something that we look at and go, I'll just do those things and I'll be good. But the law cuts us. It shows us and highlights what we're like and why we need help. Why we need redemption, not just aid. Why we need saving and rescue and forgiveness. And it even says this, and I I think I'm going to quote this every week. The Apostle Paul, and believe me, he grew up learning about the law. He did not have a nominal Jewish background. He had a hardcore, devout Jewish background. And what does he say when God changes his heart and he meets Jesus Christ? He says, Christ is the end of the law. Not the termination of it. Not the making it go away. He's the end like a destination. He's the terminal point. The law should point us and end with Christ. Applies to this commandment too. So let's look at it this way. Um, If you're taking notes, here's, here's where I'm headed. The act of murder, the heart of murder, and the artistry of murder. The act of murder... The heart of murder and the artistry of murder. Uh, first off, just the language itself, not a lot to work with. Um, if you think it's short in English, you ought to see it in Hebrew. It's two words. But uh, let, let's, let's clarify our terms. Old, some older English translations, the King James, says you shall not kill. And you shall not murder really is a preferable translation because kill would just be a blanket prohibition on any taking of life. And, and this is important to know that even before this passage, even before the giving of the Ten Commandments, way back in Genesis, when God rescues Noah and his family and they make it through the flood, the flood wipes out all living things on the face of the earth except those living in that ark. When they come off the ark, God reestablishes his covenant between himself and his people. And one of the things he says when Noah and his family come off the ark is whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And really in some ways that's the biblical underpinnings of what we might call the state and allowing for things like law enforcement, the military. That God says from now on when somebody sheds someone's blood, I won't shed their blood. Men in my place, men acting on my behalf may shed their blood. Not as vigilantes, but responsibly in a way that reflects what I'm like. So that's where you have things like law enforcement, military, war. And the law of God makes provisions for war. So it's not a blanket prohibition on the taking of life. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get into a discussion about capital punishment. I'm just saying that's the language of the command. But what is it saying? It is a blanket prohibition on all other taking of life. And the term that's used here of murder is even used in the case um, elsewhere in the Old Testament about this, it's really amazing, this provision that God made in the promised land that there were going to be cities called cities of refuge. 
And if you accidentally killed someone, now he uses the example if two men are out and they're cutting wood and like the axe head came off and flew and hit a guy and took his life. No malice, no, no premeditation, complete accident. What do you do about, well, that man's family may want to come kill you. There's, there were cities that you could flee to and, and be safe. Cities of refuge. That's how God provided for that. But he uses that same term of what that man accidentally did with his axe head that's used here in the command. In other words, all killing, premeditated or accidental. You shall not. So let's just, let's just kind of stop and pause and look at what we have so far. God forbids us taking life and death into our own hands. You know, the, the obvious application would be to assault someone, to murder someone ourselves, uh, to, order, to, to arrange for someone to be killed by our own arrangements. It would be a prohibition on suicide to take one's own life. And we need to say these things from time to time. I, I just don't see how we could have a room this size and not have at least a few people here who have thought about it before. I have a friend in my life right now who is talking to me about because of a physical condition that he wants to take his life. It's prohibited. And there's one other I've got to say, and even as I say this, I just feel like I'm on eggshells. And I'm, I don't feel like I'm on eggshells because of, I'm not nervous about saying the truth. I'm nervous because of the present cultural climate and the present political climate, which is so polarized and so shrill that I, I just feel like if, if you shuffle your foot wrong, you're lumped into one category or you're aligned with one group, I, I would have said this Two years ago, I would say it a year from now. It is a prohibition on taking the life of the unborn. It is a prohibition on taking the life of the unborn. And I know that that touches the lives of people in this room. Directly or indirectly. And, and I really want you to hang with me. Because what, what we're here to do is to gather around good news. And if, if the command cuts, and that's God doing the cutting, it's a healing cut. So I want, I want you to hang with me, because I want you to hear the good news. That God forbids us taking death into our own hands. But what about the heart? Because something that we, you know, as we've been saying, it's not just the baseline behaviors. It's what's up underneath at the heart level that drives these behaviors. And you really get that in Jesus's um, interpretation and not really, not reinterpretation, just digging into what was already there. Let me read the passage again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. Now we just went from will to weapon to baseline anger. We just went from something hardly anyone does to something everyone does. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable 
to the hell of fire. And, and even though this is convicting, it's so extremely helpful because when we want to prop up our own goodness or sort of let ourselves off the hook of, man, I'm so glad I'm not, you know, I'm not as bad as the really bad people. In fact, we've even talked in here about if there's a myth that all of us are really into, we could call it the myth of good me. And so when we're kind of celebrating that myth, we'll say things like, well, you know, I've never killed anybody until Jesus unpacks what the command really requires. You know, if, if you've hated someone, just, just the heart posture of hatred or if I'm going to put you in your place, you've broken the commandment. And it made me think about, you know, why do we hate certain people? And we could generate a long list on that. But I want, to, I want to look at two about why do we hate people? The heart of murder. One would be this. And, um, hey, I, I left my Bible down there. I'm sorry. It's a slickly run operation here. Thank you. Thank you. It, let me give you the first one. And this is, because uh, I was thinking about, well, what was the first murder? Cain and Abel. And it's, that murder is actually brought up in the New Testament. And it's not often that the Bible will say, now, why did someone do such and such? The reason someone did such and such, I mean, just completely, like, if this was in a movie, we would call it an idiot clause. But here's what First John 3 says. 1 John 3.12. This is so insightful. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? All right, that's the question on the table. Here's the answer. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We hate people who expose us. We hate people who just them being them and being in our presence, they show things about us that we don't want to be seen. And you know, I've heard, I've heard it said that Jesus wasn't killed because he was good. Jesus wasn't killed because he was loving. Jesus was killed because he was holy and he exposed the people around him. You had to either move toward him or just be repulsed and hate him. And it's worth us looking at, you know, what, are there people in my life and I can't stand them? Why can't I stand them? Because they just, they remind me of things about me that I don't want to be true. Like, I hate that guy. He's, he dominates every conversation. And if we were honest, the reason that we hate that he dominates every conversation is that we want to talk. He has to give his opinion about everything and everybody has to listen to him instead of listening to me. I'm exposed. Um, there's another big one and that is, you know, we, we, we hate people who expose us. Arguably, this is the bigger one or, or it's just another version of the first one. We hate people that hurt us. We hate people who hurt us, wound us, or hurt people that we care about, or wound people that we care about. I'll give you a bunch of examples of this in the Bible, but here's one. King David had a lot of children, and he had them by different wives. And um, he had 
a daughter by the name of Tamar. And he had a son by another mother named Amnon. And Amnon, the guy, became infatuated with Tamar. And he wanted to sleep with her. And so he did. And he, he violated her. He raped her. And then what had been infatuation just turned to repulsion. And he just kind of drove her away. And it, it, everything about that story is just horrible, horrible. Okay, now, Amnon was her half-brother. She had a blood brother, Absalom. And Absalom found out about it. And so, so he went out that day and he killed Amnon, right? Nope. Or a month later he killed him. Nope. A year later. For two years he just sat back and premeditated and killed him. Uh, the way our hearts naturally operate is that, hey, look, if you're going to grow up, you've got to get used to some normal wear and tear. You're going to have some setbacks. There's going to be some, you know, there's some jerks in this life. Try not to be one of them, but there's jerks in the workplace or there's family members that are tough to deal with. But then there is this line. There is this line of human decency. And if you cross that, well, it just depends. Like you cross that line, all bets are off. I mean, the, the heart of murder is, I want you out of my life. It can look like taking a contract out on somebody to kill them. It can look like the silent treatment. It can look like assault. It can look like an icy heart. The heart of murder is, I don't want you alive anymore. Who is that in your life? And if we were honest, I bet for a lot of us, it's relatives. And I'm, believe me, not trying to be funny. And we could laugh talking about our, our family struggles. Especially a relative that you don't share blood with. It might be an in-law. And they just, over the months and years... In that, in that way that family can. And in a fallen world, family does. They have hurt you. And just, no, there's no, there's no assassin. You know. there, there's, no, there's no weaponry. But the dynamic between the two of you, inside of you, is I need you gone. If I can't have you physically gone, I'm going to have you emotionally gone. But I would also say this. I, I'm willing to, to be thought weird or out of touch or fanciful or whatever. But I just, I, I have said this over the years. I just think in a room this size, I bet somebody has actually killed someone. Or at least been responsible for someone's wrongful death. All of us have hated. All of us have written people off. All of us have lived like, if I could just have you gone, life would be better. The law cuts the heart. So, how could murder have artistry? What's the artistry of murder? 
um, somebody just last week shared this story with me, and I, I hunted it down. It was a story about Wynton Marcellus. Wynton Marcellus, a jazz trumpeter. And um, this is from about almost 15 years ago. He was playing at the Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village. And it was a real odd season in his life. I mean, he's, he's someone who's kind of at the top of his game, and he can pack out Lincoln Center and all that kind of thing. But he was just in this weird season of his life. He was very melancholy. He gained a bunch of weight. And um, the writer of this article about Marsalis, he, he's at the Village Vanguard, just kind of on a low season, kind of off night. He's there, and he's watching this jazz group, and he sees this trumpeter kind of in the back of the group, really sort of turned away from the audience and just kind of to himself. And he, he asked the person next to him, is that, Went, is that Wynton Marsalis? And the man who's next to him, who's, who's another customer, and he's also a jazz musician, said, no, I seriously doubt that's the case. And it was. Just kind of playing almost like a, just, he's like a player in this little club that night. That's a whole other story, but at one point, he's, he's taking the lead on this jazz song. It's a very, like, melancholy, heartfelt song from the 30s. And it's just, it's like electric. Like the whole room is with him. And sort of at this peak moment where everybody's fully concentrating on him, somebody's cell phone went off. And the guy who wrote this article, he said he, at, at that moment, he actually wrote uh, on his notes, it said, Magic Ruined. Whole room went quiet, and Wynton Marsalis is just at the mic, and, and his eyebrows are up. And then people start talking again. The band stopped. And so they're just kind of frozen in time. Crowd's kind of already left him. And he, he played the ringtone. On pitch, without prep, he played the ringtone. And then he played the ringtone again. And then he tweaked it. And then he tweaked it again. And then the band came back in. And then he brought the whole piece back to where he was before and finished it. And the, the guy that wrote this article said, the room exploded. Like, he is a master artist. He has mastered this instrument. Now, let me tell you why this is a bad sermon illustration. And then I'm going to tell you why it's a good sermon illustration. This is a bad sermon illustration if you take it from the perspective of Wynton Marsalis because he didn't know that was going to happen. He was surprised by that ringtone and he had to just work with what he had. That is never an illustration of anything about God. God is not surprised. God is not thwarted. God is not sidetracked. So in that sense, the sermon illustration does not, does not work. However... From the perspective of the crowd, you know, this just awful, shrill, kill the magic moment, thing, interruption, that this master artist took it and he made what was happening in the room even more beautiful. Like he, he took the ugly thing and made more beauty out of it. More celebration out of it. I want you to hear what uh, the Apostle Peter said 
in the book of Acts. And he said this. He said this right after the Holy Spirit was poured out on all these different people. All these these crowds of people in Jerusalem speak different languages and all that. Listen to this juxtaposition that Peter says about Jesus. Very relevant to what we're talking about. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And did you hear the juxtaposition? You, men of Israel, you killed the Messiah. You killed Jesus of Nazareth. And you did it according to the plan and the foreknowledge that had always been there for God. God's plan A. And what does the New Testament say? Is that God sends his son whose life is just a masterpiece. It's artistry. He lived a life of love, and we killed him. And by the way, in our, in our hymnody, in our Christian songs, it's a recurring theme that it wasn't just someone else that killed him. This is not like our big anti-Semitic gathering time to like talk about the Jews who killed him. We killed him. We killed him with our sin. The, the most tragic, horrible interruption and ugliness on what was supposed to be good and beautiful, what seems like the great interruption of history, that God takes that and shows himself to be the master artist. That like through... I mean, Jesus was murdered. That was a kangaroo court by people who had it in for him. He was murdered, and through his murder, oh man, where do we start? He atoned for all murderers who turned to him. Do you hate anyone? If we hate anyone, and I would say in my own life, I thought that it I just thought in my own heart as I got further into the Christian life, I would get better at this. And I feel like I'm becoming more hateful. Maybe it's I'm learning more about my heart. But if we hate anyone, we break the commandment. And wonder of wonders, through the unjust murder of a man, all my hate can be atoned for. Unclean, hateful men and women are made clean when they turn to this one who was murdered. Death is atoned for. Death is overcome. Death is overcome. He was murdered and rose to life. And the New Testament says he is the first fruit of what is going to happen when he comes back at the end of time, that the dead will be raised to life because of what he did. And again, I just like to say this maybe once or twice a year, the place to be downtown at the return of Jesus Christ is going to be Springwood Cemetery. 
the coming to life of the historic dead of Greenville, South Carolina. It would be the place to be. That he over he is going to reverse death. And that those who turn to him and believe in him and trust him won't just be raised as they were to undergo judgment, but their bodies will be transformed. People who were murdered, martyrs who were martyred, people who were burned. So there is no grave because they were just made into ashes. Their bodies will be glorified and their souls glorified because he was murdered and rose to life. But here's the other thing. And, I, you know, we talk about that a lot in what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. But we need to talk about this too. Is the New Testament says he broke the power of sin. He broke it. He broke the power of hating. He broke the power of grudges. He broke the power of bitterness. He broke the power of family strife. He broke the power of murder. And the hymn says, be, Jesus, be of sin the double cure. Take away my guilt, but take away the power of it. We don't have to be hateful people. If you turn to this risen Christ, not through just willpower, not just through discipline, but through the work of his Holy Spirit and his breaking the power of sin, we can be made into loving people. We can be made into people who can actually cut some slack to the person that I want gone. And slack can turn into mercy. And mercy can turn into a relationship. Uh, I heard this story several years ago. You may have heard about this. There's a um, Christian musician named Stephen Curtis Chapman. And when he was on a tour, again, I think this was about 15 years ago, he, uh, he told a story about a group of missionaries in the mid-20th century, in the 50s, and they were trying to reach a group of uh, unreached people in, in Ecuador. And this is like, when you think about foreign missions, this would be like what you think about where they come in on the plane and they're dropping gifts to the people and dropping... Uh, little things in their language that say we are your friend and it's, you know, people in grass hut. I mean, you know, like when you think of the foreign, famous foreign missions, uh, mental picture, they were doing that. And um, one of the guys that was on that missions team was named uh, Nate Saint. And he and his team were, were killed by the Indians that they were trying to minister to. They were, they were, they were martyred. So, Stephen Curtis Chapman is on this tour, and um, he tells that story, and he says, I want you to meet Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint. He was five years old when his dad was killed, and so this, you know, this now older man walks out, and the crowd just, you know, like, wow. You know, like, his dad did that, and, and here's this man now, he's an older man, and he knows Jesus Christ, and he's standing before them, and then... Stephen Curtis Chapman said, now, I want you to meet one of the men who killed his father. Please welcome Minkaye. And one of the men who murdered Nate Saint, who had become a Christian, comes out, and the two of them embrace. And apparently for those who were there, they said, 
you could hear the audible gasp of the crowd. That, that is a level of forgiveness and reconciliation that is not achievable by just kind of like digging deep. The gospel would have to be true. The gospel is true. The power of sin has been broken. We can be loving people. Who, who do you need to forgive? What coworker? What relative? What person from your past who did that thing that you can hardly verbalize? Who do you need to forgive? Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we don't have to murder. Outwardly or in our hearts, we can walk in love. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for any of us who have never turned to your son and said, help me, I hate, I hold grudges, I dismiss, I want people gone, I've even taken life. Lord, turn that person's heart to you even right now to look to Jesus who underwent murder, rose from the dead, Father, for the man or the woman here who's directly been touched by abortion and they're burdened by that and they carry that weight, would you enable her, enable him to turn to you? Say, Lord Jesus, make me whole. For all of us, Father, make us loving people. Make us a loving church. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.